we have been in this, uh, as I prayed, we've been in this series on the Lord's Prayer. And we've been going through it line by line, the Lord's Prayer. It's been super rich. It's been rich for me because I, haven't, I didn't grow up in this environment where I knew the Lord's Prayer. I'd heard it. And so it sort of sounded familiar to me. It was in the background of the culture that I grew up in. Maybe some of you were like, background, man. It was in my culture. Like we grew up saying it every week or we said it at the table or we, some of you were like, we say it at the AA meeting every time, amen, right? Like every week. It's part of so many people's culture. Some of you may not know it as well. And I, and I didn't know it. In fact, I was nervous that I was going to get up here and end up messing it up one of these times as I was trying to say it out loud, you know, like, because for me, it just sort of is something that's rote, like the Pledge of Allegiance or uh, like, in, in, like have, you, have you seen when somebody does the Star Spangled Banner at like the football game and they goof it up, right? They've been practicing for the entire month ahead of time. It's the, it, you know, it's the, the World Series or the Super Bowl and they get to the lines of the of the Star Spangled Banner and they can't come up with it. It's just because they've just learned it by rote. Well, hopefully what we were trying to do is to make this more a, a sense of understanding the words as, they, as we said them and they flowed through us. And we're, we're sort of getting to the end of, uh, we are at the very end of this series, the end of the Lord's Prayer. Here's the text that it comes from. I want you to see it again. It's in Matthew chapter six, uh, verses nine and following. This is the Lord's Prayer. And as you see it embedded in uh, Jesus's teaching, this is part of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching his disciples. And he says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then these final words, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's the text. Now, our series had been, has been called, How Then Should We Pray? And what we're trying to get in touch with you guys is this very sort of this universal human thing where the human heart is longing when we look at the world and we look at the brokenness in the world and we look at the, the, um, the disaster that the world is and we look at our own lives and we look at the brokenness within us, that, we, that thing inside us that goes, God, like how God what do we do with this? How do I live with this? How do I deal with this? What do I do about this? Like, how should we even pray about it? And we were trying to get in touch with that sense of angst that if we're all really honest about the world and about our world, we think, I don't, I don't even know what to do with this. How should we even pray about this? God, are you part of the answer? How do we even interact with you, God, given the state that we're all in? And then, this phrase, Jesus begins by saying, this then is how you should pray. And he goes on with that familiar teaching. This then, he says, is how you should pray. If I was to sum up the whole Lord's Prayer, it's like Jesus saying, listen, I hear your angst. I hear you wrestling. I know your pain. This then is how you should pray. And he goes on to say this. Put your hope in God and in a relationship with him. Put your hope in God and in a relationship with him. Put your hope in who God is and walk with God. That is our hope. That's Jesus's answer to this angst. That's the prayer. And then at the end, these lines, Jesus ends this prayer of help with that 
summary, and this is the, the, what we're talking about today. He ends with those lines sort of like saying this, and we put our hope in you, God, for yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory, may it be. We put our hope in you, God, for your, the kingdom and the power and the glory. Now, it's interesting, this, this uh, uh, last phrase, some of you may have, may have noticed this, not in your Bibles. Have you noticed that? If you pull the Bibles out from underneath the chair in front of you and looked up Matthew 6, you'd see it's actually not in there. It's footnoted in there. And so some of your translations have it and some don't. And the reason is, and this is fa- we thought this was fascinating, the reason is that, that this, this it's well documented that the earliest Greek translations, the manuscripts that we have, the fragments or full books of the book of Matthew, Jesus didn't use those words. He ended the prayer with, uh, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then it ended. But very quickly after, listen, after what? After Jesus rose from the dead and turned the world upside down, the believers started to pray. This is like by the end of the first century, the believers started to pray the way the Lord taught them to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be their name. They prayed all that. And at the end, they said, for you, listen, risen Christ, for you have come back from the dead and made all of this confirmed true. You've defeated death. We're going to pray all these things. Why? With what reason? Because for yours is the kingdom and you have the power and you have the glory. That's what they began praying early on. And over time, some scribes and copyists said, man, that's good. I love what our church does. Let's get that right back in the Bible. And they added it in. And we see it there. And so that's why it's footnoted. It didn't end up in the books of Matthew until probably 7th or 8th century. But, but, this is, but we preach it now and we pray it when we do it because Christians forever have prayed that because it is a perfect ending to what God's heart is, to what Jesus' heart is in this sermon. The heart of, we put our hope in you, God and in a relationship with you. We want to look at these last couple of uh, words, this last phrase, starting with yours is the kingdom. What does it mean for thine is the kingdom? What does it mean yours is the kingdom? And it's simply this, friends. It's an expression of hope and of trust that God is our gracious and generous king. That we would submit our lives to him and he would be our gracious and generous King. That's what kingdom is about, right? It's about leadership. It's about authority. It's about guiding. It's about God actually being our king. Here's the crazy notion about Christianity. Man, God, we know God is worthy of worship. We know when we think about one creator over all, heaven and earth, this, this mighty creator, like we know like, wow, that's amazing. He's this sovereign king over the universe. Maybe some of us can get our heads around that. But the crazy notion about Christianity is not just the sovereign king, but my king, like my king, like my Lord, like I give my life to him and to his leading me. And so if I was to rephrase the end of this, why would Christians have prayed this forever at the end of Jesus' teaching us to pray? It's something along the lines of this. I put my hope in you, God, for you are my generous and my gracious king. Where do I get the words generous and gracious in that? Your kingdom, for thine is the kingdom. Where do I get generous and gracious? Because at the top of the prayer, it starts our Father in heaven, our perfect Father in heaven. And if we were to parse what we know a perfect Father to be about, it is generous and gracious. It's as we think about a perfect Father shepherding us 
as we submit our lives to him, shepherding us through life, he came and said, listen, I've got two things for you. I've got life and I've got love beyond your imagination. I'm gonna bring you life as it was designed to be. Jesus said that. He said, I came that you might have life and have it at its fullest, have it abundantly. I'm gonna come bring you life and I'm gonna come bring you love beyond your ability to even imagine it. I'm gonna bring you life. As we submit to our gracious king, he goes, and I will lead you into the life that you were designed to have. And I am brutally aware that there are many of you in this room right now who have said, well, you don't know my life story. Friends, we grieve with one another that this side of heaven, our life has not turned out to be exactly, exactly what God would have wanted for you because of sin and brokenness and accidents. That It is death and mayhem. This side of heaven is a brutal reality. But our gracious and generous Father says, I'll bring you life even in the midst of it. I'll come with all of the love and grace and strength and presence and healing and comfort for you to get through even the most unimaginable things that life can bring you. If we were to open it up, here's the mic, come talk to us, tell us your story, friends. There would be story after story of people who have walked through even the hardest things in life because our gracious and generous King has given them life even in the midst of tragedy. And then some who would be walking in the very beginnings or partway through that journey as well. But we would weep together in sadness that life isn't yet what it should be, but also enjoy that this father and king is generous and gracious. Life and love, he comes and he brings love. Paul told the, the uh, Ephesian church, he said, I pray that you being already rooted and established in love would know, would have, would have the knowledge together with all of God's people of how wide and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that love personally, to know that love that goes beyond your imagination. That's from Ephesians 3. We place our hope in this generous and gracious king because he has risen from the dead and brought life and love beyond our wildest dreams. Thanks be to God. For yours is the kingdom, and then yours is the power. We share a house with our daughter and son-in-law and their two children. And so every morning, my alarm clock is a four-year-old running in, usually with a little car in his hand, saying, Here, Papa, let's play. You can be this car and that car. This morning, part of what we were greeted with was to sell the announcement of Easter. And uh, our grandson, Oliver, whom you saw on the video with the little warrior's hat there, uh, was talking to his mother, and his mother, our daughter, says, yeah, it's a special Sunday. We're going to church. It's a special Sunday. It's Easter. And Oliver, do you know what that means? And she started to explain it to him. It's when Jesus, he died, but he also rose from the dead. And Oliver said, yes. And he's invisible. We can't see him, but he's still here, huh? And she says, Yes. And, and uh, this is also a special Sunday because you have a gift, a surprise to find, an Easter basket. So you have to hunt for the Easter basket. And Oliver said to his mother, is it in the backyard? And she said, no. He said, well, is it in the front yard? And she said, no. And he said, is it in the house? And she said, yes. And he said, did Jesus bring it? 
And she said, well, I guess you could say so. She's, not, she's better theology than that, but you know, this is four-year-old doctrine. I mean, come on. Did Jesus bring it? Yes. It's not in the backyard? No. It's not in the front yard? No. She said, he, Oliver says, did he come in here? <laughs> did he come in here? Right here in the house? And he hunted for it. He tracked it down and he found it. But that shouldn't surprise us that somebody could be that astonished that Jesus could actually come in here because sometimes we forget that Jesus, when we have yielded to him, befriended him, follow him, actually came in here. And the power that's always attached to Jesus, the power that raised him from the dead, actually came in here with him. I often am saying to myself, my goodness, my goodness, did you come in here? And the Lord wants to say, yes, and please don't forget it. Maybe even more importantly, don't act as though I didn't. Because I'm not in the backyard, I'm not in the front yard. I'm right in there, this power. Some of you study Greek. Others have heard so many sermons, you've heard this before. Some of you may not have heard it yet, but it's interesting that the Greek word for power, translated power over and over again, is dunamis, which is the word from which we get our word dynamite. It's as though the text is saying, for yours is the kingdom and the dynamite in our lives and the glory forever and ever. It's a power. It's a power that raised Christ from the dead and will raise us, as Pastor Jeff referenced earlier on one day, uh, one day when he comes and returns for his church. In 1 Corinthians 6, 14, it talks about how God is all things are lawful, not all things are profitable, so I do the hard work, Paul says, of discerning the difference and focusing on the things that actually are profitable for me. And then in verse 14, it says, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power, through his dunamis. It's a power that raised Christ and will raise us one day. It's the power to live a transformed life. There's a often quoted text in Philippians chapter 4. That text, I can do, Paul also, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But when you look back at the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I can sometimes get caught short in that prayer. Lord, forgive my sins as I have forgiven those who sinned. No, never mind. Do better than that. Do better than I've done. Forgive my sins. But we realize, forgive my sins as I have forgiven those who sinned against me, as I have forgiven my debtors. I realize this is impossible. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. How in the world is that possible? How can I do that? And Paul is saying, I can do all things. And in the context of Philippians uh, 4, He's challenging in the front end of that chapter some folks in the church who aren't getting along very well, who are a little bit snarky with each other, to stop being snarky, get along, be kind, be harmonious. Then he challenges uh, someone in the church to help them make their relationship work. You're really practical. He challenges us in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing in all things. With prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. No matter what comes your way, rejoice. Consider it a good 
thing. That's crazy. That's impossible. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is profitable for your life, let your mind dwell on these things. And I want to say, you, you, you understand what kind of stuff comes through my mind? And how out of control it sometimes seems? And what a huge task it is to keep a pure mind? You're asking me to be what? Jesus? How is that possible? And in that context, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do anything that comes at me. And in verse 13 it says, I can do it through him who strengthens me. And guess what the word strengthens is? Dunamis. It's as though he's saying, I can do all things through Christ who dynamites me. Who puts the explosive and the fuse and the match needed to light it in me. The power to live a transformed life. And it's the power in which we are all clothed by Jesus. It's the power that has come into the living room of our hearts and camped there. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus has resurrected. He's been walking the earth for a while. And just before the ascension, where 40 days later, he raises up in heaven. While he's in the middle of a blessing and commissioning his apostles, he says, behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Did you know that you, if you're following Christ, have been clothed with power dunamis again from on high. Same word that we're focusing on from the Lord's prayer. Stay there until this dynamite lands in you. It's this power, the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit that was placed in each of us when we confessed our need for Jesus, our commitment to receive him as our rescuer, our savior, and our intent to live according to his teachings. It's in this power that we find our hope. You know, the Tournament of Roses Parade happens every year. Most of us watch some portion of it every year. What, on Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena? It's a beautiful place. Many of us have been there one year. You know, and the, the, the floats just kind of come one right after the other, right? I mean, you, you can't just stop in the middle of the thing because it jams up the whole deal. One year, there was a beautiful float that was coming down Colorado Boulevard, and it fizzled, sort of stuttered, and stopped. And everything behind it had to stop. It was all backed up, all clogged up. So they go and they peel away the roses and the flowers to reveal the vehicle that was underneath powering this float. And they realize the reason it won't go anymore is because it ran out of gas. It ran out of gas in the middle of the Rose Bowl Tournament of Roses parade. And nobody could move forward because this float had run out of gas. Here's the ironic piece of this. It was a float representing the Standard Oil Company. <laughs> the irony of it. All the resources they had, and the fuel company has its float around a gas. Listen, that needn't ever be an illustration of the church. And it needn't ever be an illustration of your life. Because, yes, friends, he came right in here. Resurrection power.
Thanks, Rick. And the, that passage of Scripture ends with, yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory. And glory is this really interesting word. In fact, I even had to look it up because it feels like a churchy word, kind of. And, uh, and it's a really simple definition. It just means praise or renown that's won by notable achievements. So it's not just praise and renown. They're not empty words. It's not empty adoration, but it's based on notable achievements. And, um, and what's interesting is how notable the achievement is should impact and inform how much glory that thing receives. And unfortunately, I think most of us, our world, what we put um, our glory, what we give glory to is really small. Um, a couple months ago, my son and a bunch of middle schoolers were playing this game, Clash Royale. It's this incredible uh, game on your phone. It's an easy way to waste 10 minutes, a half hour a day. And, um, and, I, and, uh, and I hate losing. And so I'm watching these middle schoolers just kill it. And so all of a sudden, the only way to be competitive is I start spending money on this stupid game. And uh, I'm spending money and spending money. I'm like 25, 30 bucks just to be competitive. And, uh, and I finally made it to level nine, the jungle. And I'm like so proud of myself. My God, the jungle. And I texted all the middle schoolers and they're like, you are such a dork and we know you paid for it. But here is, I wanted this glory. This was this notable achievement. I've worked hours, embarrassingly amount of hours for, and I wanted some glory for it. And everyone knew, even every middle schooler knew intuitively, that is not a notable achievement. That means you have a problem. Okay. But I think so much in our life, we, we, have, we, we give glory, and we, what, we, what we put as the, where the decimal point is, where the, the notable achievement is, is so low. I think a better example is uh, when, the, when the Giants won the World Series, you know, a million people came out. The Giants did this thing, especially the first time they won the World Series. It was incredible. I didn't even think there were Giants fans anymore, and Bob Hess and I were like, hey, let's just, we'll, we'll get breakfast, we'll take the ferry over and go. We didn't realize a million people were going to be there, and so we just watched it from BJ's. A million people! <laughs> came to see this thing because the Giants had done this notable thing. And all of the San Francisco and surrounding people came to give glory, right? To give praise and renown to this team that did this notable thing. When the Cubs won, that was notable. Five million people. I know, five million people because it was notable. It was, the decimal point was at the right place. And that's just sports. That's just silly sports stuff. And this morning when we're talking about um, our faith in Christ, in Scripture, we actually get this picture where God's trying to help His people because God is invisible, and it's hard to understand what kind of glory does God deserve. And, uh, and the prophet Isaiah actually is invited into the throne room of God, and he gets a picture of who God really is and the kind of glory that God truly deserves. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. He was sitting on the throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. So right, He's in this throne room. He's there. He's big. He has this gigantic robe, and like he's ready to be worshipped. And then this is what's interesting. Here's who's giving him glory. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. Two wings covered their faces and covered their feet, and, and, they, and two were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And it's so nice and refreshing that it's not Clash Royale, and it's not the Cubs, that deserves our glory, that we get this picture that God, who is seated on the throne, deserves our praise and our renown because of his notable achievements. Everything he has done, everything he has created, everything about his character deserves praise and worship. And what I think is so incredible about this passage, who's in the throne room? Who, who, who has some memory recall? Who's in the throne room? 
Seraphim, oh, thank you. Seraphim, angels, it's just God, it's just angels, because God is holy and perfect and totally other. And who can be in his throne room? Only angels. Here is what is crazy. On Easter, the throne room of God fundamentally changes. On Easter, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection on Sunday fundamentally changes humans' relationship with God. Now God, a sinful, broken, rebellious people, have a way in to the throne room of God. The, uh, the scripture says on Friday that the curtain was torn in two. On, on, on Good Friday, when Jesus died, the, the, the barrier between us and God was torn in two, and there is no barrier between us and God. And that's what we celebrate on Easter. And this is what is so awesome. In Revelation chapter 7, we get now a new picture of the throne room of God. In Isaiah, it's just angels. God, angels, and then the Jewish people could peer in. They could look in and go, whoa, that's really cool. But in Revelation 7, it says this, After this I looked, and there before me was this great multitude, and no one can count, from every nation, from every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and um, before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. Just like in Palm Sunday, the people were leaning into this truth, and here it is lived in reality, and they cried, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Easter is fundamentally changes because God not only is inviting you to be a spectator, when you think of like the parade and the cubs, they're so great, and you watch them, and you guys did such a good job. That's not how the kingdom of God works. God, in his generosity, actually invites us to be part of his solution, to be part of his plan. And for those of us who put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ, we are now not only members of the throne, we are part of the family of God, and it is our Right is our responsibility to be about establishing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Because of the resurrection, we now have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to get after all that God has for us, to be healed and transformed in every single way. And lastly, we get to put the decimal point in the right spot. We get to give praise and renown to the one true God who is so deserving that only angels should be allowed to worship him. But out of his goodness and generosity, he has allowed us broken and frail and dirty humans to be cleansed, to be purified, to be sanctified, to come into the throne room from every tribe, every nation, every people group. And our prayer for you, for us as a, as a pastoral team and as, as a church, that we would be people who would daily lean into that reality, that we would daily submit to the King of Kings, that we would daily lean in to giving honor and glory to God, and that we would lean in to having our lives be a part of the solution to making the wrongs right in this broken world. And so our prayer is that you would be continually part of our church family, taking steps closer and closer to Christ that you'd be inspired and invigorated to continue to run after Jesus with all of who you are. And for some of us who have been around the family of God for a long time, have been guests in, uh, in the family of God and love what God has and, and is kind of like in Isaiah peering in to the throne room of God and going, that is so awesome. Maybe this is the morning where God's saying, don't just peer in, but come into the throne room. Be in the presence of God. Be a part of the kingdom of God. And it is just a simple prayer. It is a simple acknowledgement that I am broken and dirty and needy, and Jesus has saved me. And as a discipline on Easter, we stop 
and we remember that, that Jesus died for our sins and he rose in power because death is not the answer, our sin is not the end, the end but we are saved to give God all the honor and glory, both now and forevermore. Amen and amen. Let's stand and continue to worship.